for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here's Deborah Neiman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode. Today is going to be really interesting. We're going to be talking again to Dr. Robert Van Son, a professor of veterinary science and an extension veterinarian in the Department of Veterinary and Biomedical Sciences at Pennsylvania State University. And we're going to be tackling another nutrient that is very important to goats that we don't hear a whole lot about, and that is iodine. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Van Son. Thank you, and glad to be back again. In case you missed them, we also have episodes with Dr. Vanson covering selenium and copper and colostrum, and I think a couple other things. Zinc. Yeah. So this is really great. I always learn a lot of the little nitty gritty things. And with iodine, there's not nearly as much information out there about that as there are some of these other more common minerals. But I wanted to talk about this because in the last couple of years, I've been getting an increasing number of emails and messages on social media from people who have baby goats that are born without hair or who are born with a large goiter on the front of their throat over their thyroid gland. And so I don't know if this is becoming more common or if it's just, I'm becoming more aware of it, but I thought it was definitely something that we should talk about today. So let's just get started with the basics like we usually do. And that is why is iodine important? So iodine is another one of what we call the micro minerals uh, that's required. It's an essential nutrient. And so it's needed in very minute amounts, usually, you know, just a few milligrams a day. When we think about iodine concentration in the diet, the general recommendation for goats is somewhere between 0.5 and one part per million. So really quite low. I mean, if we think about what we discussed before, you know, you're on the order of magnitude of selenium at 0.3 parts per million, but well below the requirement for zinc or copper, which were, you know, up in the range of for zinc, 40 to 50 parts per million or copper at 10 to 20 parts per million. Okay. And then how does iodine affect the body? So iodine has basically one major purpose, and that is to feed an essential nutrient to the thyroid gland. And the thyroid gland is basically your metabolic controlling organ in the body. So the thyroid gland makes what we call thyroid hormones. And these are iodinated proteins. In other words, proteins that have iodine as a component. The functional protein is what we call T3 or thyroiodinine. And then the precursor to that is what we call T4 or thyroxin. So if somebody is hypothyroid, they might be taking thyroxin supplements to, to help maintain a normal thyroid level. What happens is T4 gets converted to T3 in the cell and that's dependent upon selenium status. We talked about that a little bit um, when we talked about selenium. So an animal or a person who is selenium deficient could also end up being hypothyroid, even though their thyroid is perfectly functional. But then within the cell, 
the T3 protein acts upon the cell machinery and maintains sort of the RPMs of the body, you know, the, the basic metabolic activity. It drives how much glucose you're consuming or you're burning. And that's why generally hypothyroidism is associated with gaining of weight and hyperthyroidism is associated with weight loss. So any part of the body that is actively metabolic is under thyroid influence. So hair growth and skin is very sensitive to thyroid changes. And then just our, what we call basal metabolic rate. Basal metabolic rate is influenced by our genetics. You know, there's some people who proverbially can eat the entire cake and not gain weight. And some people can look at the cake and gain weight. And so that's all of how that thyroid hormone is working with their body machinery and how high revving their body metabolism is. Okay. So are there any natural sources of iodine in a goat's diet? Because it doesn't sound like they need a lot. No, they don't need a lot. And there's a very unique uh, cycling of iodine in the environment. The ocean has quite a bit of iodine in it. And hence, this brings up the topic we'll address in a little bit about kelp and kelp-based products. But iodine will be evaporated and then uh, come down with rainwater and fall onto the plants and get incorporated into plants. Now, the problem we have is up until a few years ago, measuring iodine in the body was really quite difficult. We didn't have routine measurements of iodine concentrations in blood. So that's why what often is done is to measure, you know, T3 or T4 concentrations. And many times only one is measured. And, and so that doesn't give you a full picture. And then of course, the thyroid gland itself that makes T3 and T4, it is stimulated by a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. So there's a, a stimulating hormone called thyroid stimulating hormone that gets released. And of course, that gets feedback from all parts of the body as to whether metabolic rate needs to be increased or decreased and all of that metabolic uh, activities. So iodine is taken up almost exclusively by the thyroid gland. The thyroid gland is extremely efficient in taking up iodine. And so we never measured iodine levels in like liver, which is what we normally use for trace mineral analysis and even in blood. But now with the new technologies with mass spectroscopy, uh, many of the labs that have historically measured trace minerals in blood and tissues are now starting to offer iodine. So we're just starting to get a better handle on what recommendations are in terms of what the iodine concentration in serum or in tissue might be. I guess I didn't finish where they're getting it from. So forage will have some iodine, but most of the iodine is either coming from iodinized salt that's available or from uh, mineral supplements. Now, generally, unless you're around the Great Lakes region, and so part of Pennsylvania, New York, and you know those states surrounding the Great Lakes, those are 
iodine deficient belts. And there's some serious iodine deficiency in South America and, and in many other countries of the world. But for the most part, we are able to provide sufficient iodine through our forage and any kind of supplements. Now, I've had situations where people haven't fed iodinized salt, and so that's led to some problems. And we're starting to recognize that the boar goat phenotype is very iodine dependent, and we see much more iodine deficiencies in the boar goat than I see in in most of the other uh, animals. Oh, that's interesting. One of the pictures that someone sent me recently of a newborn with a goiter was a boar kid. Yeah. And that's an important point is, you know, just little tidbits of information. For the most part, when a doe is pregnant, she passes on most of her trace elements to the developing fetus because the fetus needs this. As we talked about, most of the trace elements are not in sufficient quantity or concentration in milk and therefore they have to build up a store in their liver. Well, iodine does not do that because iodine is, like I said, about 95 to 98% trapped by the thyroid gland itself. And so uh, newborns with enlargements in the throat region, that's an enlarged thyroid gland because the thyroid has expanded the number of cells to try and capture the little bit of iodine that's there. So the thyroid grows in response to iodine availability. And the abnormally large thyroid is called a goiter. And we can see goiter in two scenarios. We can see goiter with iodine deficiency, and we can see goiter with iodine toxicity. So the only way we can differentiate those two, well, now we can measure serum iodine and with iodine toxicity, we'd expect an extremely high serum iodine concentration and deficiency very low, but we would have to look at the thyroid gland under the microscope itself because in toxicity, what we see is greatly enlarged follicles. They're called follicles. These are structures lined by cells that help bring the iodine in and then trap the iodine in a protein complex called thyroglobulin. And so we'll see in terms of a toxicity, we'll see massive increases in thyroglobulin within the thyroid. Whereas in deficiencies, we see a massive increase in the number of follicles within the thyroid. So so we can differentiate toxicity from deficiency through a histologic evaluation of the thyroid gland itself. More typically, I expect in most of our production animals, including goats, to see iodine deficiency and have, like you, Deborah, seen or heard of a number of cases, uh, not only in goats, but in cattle. I recently had a a situation uh, with a veterinarian in Longhorn cattle where they had uh, goiter in all their newborns. And it turns out that that was a genetic problem. There's another aspect to that where they were unable to take up that iodine in in the, uh, the offspring. But that iodine deficiency in offspring, they're born dead, they have the enlarged thyroid, 
They're hairless generally, and that's pretty classic and something we can easily fix with just some iodine supplementation through iodinized salt or through uh, even painting some iodine onto the skin. Iodine is absorbed through the skin quite readily. The only time I've had toxicities, I had it in some horses, and that was just due to a high iodine kelp-based product that had extremely high iodine concentration. And what we saw in that case was uh, some facial deformities in the newborn folds. So one time, or maybe I think it's happened a couple of times, somebody has emailed and said, I had this kid born that had no hair and this huge enlargement on the front of the throat. And then a twin was born completely normal. How common is that? And does that still mean iodine deficiency? Yeah, that, that still does. You know, again, as I mentioned, the iodine isn't shared very well. I mean, obviously it has to be shared somewhat by mom for survival of the uh, fetus because the fetus has actually a higher metabolic rate than mom does. So it needs iodine. It needs a functional thyroid. However, in cases of twins, we can see one affected by goiter and one not. Now it could be that the thyroid in what is perceived as the unaffected one actually does have enlarged follicles and things. It's just that it got the better uh, blood flow from mom and took up the iodine better than the other kid in, in the uterus. Uh, it depends on where they are relative to the nutrient-rich blood coming back through uh, the placenta. It kind of reminds me of like how you can have triplets or quads and you can have one that weighs half as much as the others. It's just that unfortunately that poor kid did not get as much nutrients through the placenta as its siblings did. Yeah. And so, you know, that becomes a problem as we know in goats, if anybody has seen a goat uterus, a pregnant goat uterus, you know, if, if you had a goat that prolapsed her uterus or something like that, or in a necropsy case or something, Goats like sheep and like cattle have a a special kind of placentation called cotyledonary. And so there's a kind of a bulge coming up from the lining of the uterus called the caruncle. And then the fetal placenta wraps around that. And actually in sheep and goats, it burrows in the middle of that, whereas in cattle, it kind of wraps around and it's It's got like a Velcro attachment. Now, that is the only exchange of nutrients that occurs. It doesn't occur across the entire placenta. And so if you have a crowded uterus, there's only so many caruncles in mom's uterus. And there could be, you know, one of the fetuses that's positioned in a place where maybe there was previous damage and caruncles were lost or, you know, scar tissue or something like that, or they were just pushed out. They didn't grow quite as fast as the other siblings within that cohort, and they're going to be shortchanged. One thing that I think is kind of challenging is like, if somebody has a goat that has a miscarriage, so like you, you have these kids that are born and they're fully formed, but they're tiny and they have no hair. 
where's the line where you would say if a goat is this far along in her pregnancy, the kids should absolutely have hair? There is a defined point in time, like in calves, we expect the hair to come in in the last month, month and a half of pregnancy. And so the hair does not develop there until sort of that very end of gestation. And so if they're basically uh, more than four months long from breeding, they're probably going to have hair or start to have a lot of hair. Okay. So taking us back a couple steps, you mentioned that either iodine deficiency or toxicity could cause a goiter. But if you're looking, would that only be in an adult? Like when you have kids born with a goiter, is that always deficiency? Essentially, yes. I mean, I can't completely rule that out because if mom is ingesting a toxic level, you know, it doesn't transfer efficiently, it does transfer and there could be enough, but that's really stretching it. I would say, you know, probably in 99% of the cases, it's going to be an iodine deficiency in the newborn. Okay. And then um, when we were preparing for this interview, you mentioned that you're seeing more iodine problems because there are quite a few kelp-based minerals on the market now. Can you explain what's happening there? Well, that's an intriguing one, you know, because as I mentioned earlier, kelp is considered to have fairly high iodine content. And so the use of kelp generally would result in more than adequate amounts of iodine, assuming they're consuming an appropriate amount or potentially toxic amounts. Where I'm seeing the problems is generally poor supplementation all around in terms of very little mineral supplement or not using iodized salt or something along those lines. Okay. Um, So when you talk about iodized salt, I just want to get this clear too, because a lot of people think that they need to have a salt block in addition to loose minerals for goats. And most nutritionists would say, no, you don't. Your loose minerals is the only source of salt that should be available. Yeah. And that's correct. If we are expecting our goats to consume their trace minerals, which would include iodine in a trace mineral salt package, then we should not provide any other salt. Because as we said, animals don't have specific appetites for all the minerals. They really only have an appetite for meeting a sodium requirement. And so the sodium requirement drives the intake. That's why we can use salt to control intake of various compounds. And so if you have two salt sources out or three, you know, we didn't talk about, but sodium bicarb, you know, putting a baking soda out, just white salt or the red salt, the trace mineral salt, your goats, they may or may not eat enough of the red salt to get the trace minerals that they need because they're only trying to meet their sodium requirement. Okay. And since you mentioned baking soda, I want to throw in that like your goats should not be consuming large amounts of baking soda. If they are, you need to look at your overall feeding program. So normally they shouldn't be consuming any, like it's just kind of there. Like, you know, you have Tums in your 
cabinet just in case you need it. Yeah, well, in the dairy industry, we put out free choice baking soda as more of, let's say, uh, a monitor to see if the rumen system is staying healthy. You know, I mean, what we're talking about is animals that get into a situation where they're eating a fair amount of grain or large grain meals and they get the drop in pH in their rumen. So this would be like after milking, if you're feeding in the milking parlor with goats and just feeding two big, you know, starch-based meals a day, there's a good chance that they're going to have a drop in uh, pH. And, and if they're not consuming enough fiber sources to, to help buffer things in terms of the chewing activity, the secretion of saliva, they're going to need some additional buffering. Now, a goat's probably not as bad of a situation as a dairy cow, but you know, when we think about if we add even up to four ounces of, of bicarb, we're really not changing the pH of a 60 gallon rumen in a dairy cow very much and similar with a goat. But because the sodium can act as an alkalizing agent in the blood, it's thought that they'll eat more sodium. And hence, you know, if there's free choice baking soda out there, they may hit that harder to help adjust the inner acid-base imbalances that are occurring with some minor rumen acidosis. So if we see a group of animals, whether they be dairy cows or dairy goats, really eating the the baking soda quite a bit or even eating dirt or something like that, then that's telling us there's probably something wrong in that rumen and it's probably a pH issue and we need to reevaluate the diet and what they're eating and what they're sorting out. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. So what have we not covered? Well, typically what you got to worry about with uh, iodine is the source of iodine. The common source of iodine in most of your mineral supplements is calcium iodate. And that's a very stable iodine form because iodine is highly soluble. So like sodium iodine or potassium iodine, which your light salt, you know, if somebody has some sodium problems and they, they need to decrease their sodium intake, they'll use light salt rather than regular salt. Salt is basically sodium chloride, whereas light salt is a blend of sodium chloride and potassium chloride or potassium iodine, you know, the iodized salt will have potassium iodine in it. Potassium iodine or sodium iodine, basically just with moisture in the air will leach out. And so if you're putting out some kind of iodized salt and leaving it out, if it's not a calcium iodate source, the iodine content is going to disappear very rapidly, especially in moist, you know, humid conditions or getting rained on. What Others have done is there is an organic form of iodine. It's a big, long word, but the short of it, it's usually expressed as E-D-D-I, ethylene, diamine, dihydroiodine. And that is an organic form, very stable. And that has been used in mineral supplements to actually help with foot problems in cattle. 
Now, if you're working with dairy goats and you're harvesting milk, you got to be cautious with iodine supplementation, especially with kelp, because the uh, government regulates iodine concentrations in milk. That's why there are all kinds of standards and regulations on iodine-based tea dips, because humans drinking the milk are much more sensitive to iodine intoxication like horses. And so the government will evaluate and monitor iodine concentrations. And I don't remember what the PMO for milk is, but it's somewhere in the range of like 300 parts per million or something like that. And milk, you're not allowed to exceed. Otherwise, your milk is considered um, tainted. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so that's one of the concerns I have with kelp-based products is the labels on many of these products, the only requirement on the label is to provide the minimum concentration of iodine, not the maximum concentration. And so when you have a kelp-based product, many of these ocean kelp coming out of you know seawater, they could have 700, 800, 1,000 parts per million of iodine in them. And the label may just say 400 parts per million. And that's all they have to guarantee. So if you couple feeding a kelp-based product using iodine teat dips, having iodine in your mineral supplements, you can easily start to push it too far. Yeah, that's really fascinating. That's the first time I've heard somebody talk about the potential for iodine teat dips, increasing the iodine level of the goat's blood. But it totally makes sense if you're dipping their teats in this substance twice a day, that they're going to wind up absorbing a lot. And they absorb it across their skin. As we said, you know, in, in deficiencies, I've had people take about an ounce to an ounce and a half of betadine and just paint it on the back or so of a goat or sheep, and they'll absorb that iodine right on through. So this is kind of a goofy thing that I heard, and it was about humans, not goats, but it it just makes me wonder if this is at all legitimate. Somebody was saying that if you paint iodine like on your forearm and it disappears, that means that you're iodine deficient, but it kind of sounds like that's just what we do. Like skin is just going to absorb it and it doesn't matter whether you're deficient or not. Yeah. I've heard those uh, statements before and I haven't seen any credible science to document that the rate of disappearance on the skin is, is associated with, you know, the iodine level, because again, we had a hard time measuring iodine directly. Yeah. And you said it's only just within the last few years that we've really been able to measure it well. So. Right. And we're talking about serum iodine, the actual iodine itself. Right. Yeah. And not, not the iodine proteins T3 or T4. Okay. Yeah. I, that idea has been around for, probably longer than we've had the ability to actually measure iodine in the blood. So it sounds like just an idea that somebody came up with. It sounded like a good idea. (laughs) Seems reasonable, but you know, there's no documentation about it. Yeah. Okay. This has been really interesting. Is there anything else that people need to know about iodine? Um, no, I mean, that's, 
from a nutrient standpoint, it, it has, you know, one primary function, you know, or your metabolic rate, but it, it certainly can affect uh, hair coat. It can affect rate of growth. It can affect uh, milk production. Matter of fact, before in dairy cattle, in the 19, I think it was the 1940s, before the whole advent of the technology that we had in the 1980s and forward of bovine somatotropin, where we were using an actual growth hormone that could stimulate milk production, they used to iodinate the protein from milk called casein and then feed iodinated casein to dairy cows to increase milk production. Okay. And that just reinforces the whole idea that, you know, iodine is, is a major driver of metabolic rate. Right. Now I had read somewhere, I think it was probably like in the ruminant nutrition book that the toxic level of iodine was something like a hundred times more than the amount that they actually need. But when they say that they're talking about like, that's how much iodine would actually kill a goat. And a, a goat would actually be develop symptoms like a goiter or something like that long before it got to that point. Yeah. So, you know, that brings up a good point of, you know, what, what is actually the defined endpoints when we talk about these kind of things. And so, you know, in terms of the disease, we think of disease mostly in the, the framework of infectious diseases. So, you know, having a bacteria or viral disease or so on and so forth, but the same concepts hold for nutritional diseases. So you can have basically, you know, we've all heard now with the pandemic, asymptomatic carriers, you know, of the virus. Well, you can have an animal that's asymptomatic, you know, doesn't show any clinical signs, but heading towards either deficiency or toxicity. Okay. And the only way we're going to find that is by measuring and having good criteria to say, okay, below this threshold means this toxicity or deficiency is occurring. Then as that deficiency or toxicity of iodine gets more severe, we start to get into early stages of disease that might be, you know, scruffiness of the hair coat, you know, maybe some hair falling out and things, and then it'll progress. Goiter is what we consider clinical deficiency or clinical toxicity. Then mortality or death is the ultimate endpoint, right? So, you know, generally, Iodine isn't very toxic. It will cause disease, but it, it doesn't cause mortality. And so when you hear these things, like you mentioned, 100 times the requirement, that's not necessarily a toxic value, okay? What that is, is an MTL, maximum tolerable level. And that's the way the scientists compare apples to apples across uh, various nutrients. The maximum tolerable level is that concentration of that nutrient of concern, iodine, that can be fed and consumed by an animal for up to three months without causing death. Oh, that's a good thing to know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's generally when we talk about 
toxicities or, or higher levels, we're actually talking about maximum tolerable levels, levels that can be tolerated up until about three months. And that's sort of the period of time that's been used for comparisons. But some nutrients, especially like toxic nutrients like selenium and things like that, you know, it's not far above that maximum tolerable level that death can ensue. Right. One of the things that I'm not super happy about with some of the kelp-based minerals is that they tend to have, one of them in particular has an extremely high level of copper added to it. And I emailed the company and said, you know, the copper in this looks scary high, especially because goats love kelp. Like anybody that's ever put kelp out, you know, the goats eat it like candy. Mm. And um, they sent me a study and it was only three months and the, the liver levels of the goats for copper at that point was according to what I've heard really high, like it was like 500, but they said it was fine because there were no lesions on the liver. And I was kind of like, uh, yeah, but you only did this for three months and it was already 500. Like maybe there would be lesions next month. Right. Yeah. So that's always a concern. Um, my bigger concern with most of the kelp based products is you know, kelp is highly touted as having very, what's called bioavailable minerals in them. And it's probably because of most of the minerals are incorporated into protein. So they're basically what we call chelated minerals and they're not going to be affected by the rumen environment that much. However, you know, when you do look at some of the analysis of these kelp-based products, other than iodine, most of the other minerals are at fairly low concentrations, you know, because there's not a lot of selenium in the seawater and so on. And so, you know, that's one of the challenges is unless they supplement or fortify the kelp with other sources of minerals, they're not going to have a very well balanced. It's going to be really high in iodine, but it's not going to be adequate in, in many of the other trace elements. And so, you know, fortification is appropriate from the level of, you know, trying to level everything off, although it's going to be really hard to fortify at the level of iodine respective to the other nutrients. But then what's going to have to happen is the intake is going to have to be restricted in some way. And as you said, you know, most animals seem to like the kelp and it seems very palatable. And so that becomes a problem. And, you know, how do you restrict intake? Well, you're going to either have to add a whole pile of salt to it or something, you know, or limit the amounts that are available for the animals. Yeah. That's the, the thing that kind of scares me too about the kelp based minerals or just people thinking that like they can just use kelp is that the amount that the goats would have to eat would be huge. And then by the time they eat enough kelp to get enough selenium and other minerals, they would have gone toxic on the iodine. <laughs> like, Well, they would have certainly gotten more than they need on the iodine side. You know, we've addressed this in a couple of different of the episodes where, you know, all the minerals and the vitamins are not necessarily always balanced appropriately relative to each, each other. And part of that's because of the variation of mineral content in the forages that these mineral supplements are, are trying to balance against. And so I can't cast too many stones at the manufacturers because they have a heck of a hard job to try and 
You know, they're not going to make an individual supplement for every single farm or goat farm, you know, in a state or something, you know, they have to come up with something hitting the middle of the road. Right. Right. And we just need to be aware of that and appropriately either limit certain supplementation or, or add some other supplementation to, to make the best balanced diet that we can for the goats. Yeah. I think that is a really great summary of not only this episode, but like all the episodes we've done on minerals. And, and I've tried to tell people that like, there is no single mineral that's going to be perfect for every farm because they're all different. You know, like I always use the example of the farm that, that was four miles away from us for the first 19 years that we lived here. And we had problems with copper deficiency that they did not have because we had sulfur in our well water, which they did not have. And they had a problem with vitamin E deficiency because their goats were all on dry lot, eating nothing but dry hay, which does not have a lot of vitamin E in it. Whereas our goats were on pasture, which is lots of green stuff. And they were doing great with vitamin E. Right. Right. That's exactly it. You know, I, I mean, the aquifers are different. You know, even if you have farms next to each other, it might be a different water source. Just the, the topography, how the rain moves through the soil, the amount of organic matter, pH, whether you lime or not. I mean, there's so many variables here. Yeah. And so that's why I love doing these episodes with you so that people know like, okay, if I see this symptom or that symptom or whatever, then my goats might need a little bit more of this one nutrient because of the unique conditions on my farm. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, just to to highlight with iodine, I mean, really the most sensitive indicator is going to be babies born with goiter because that's going to happen before mom has the goiter. So uh, the babies are going to be sort of the canary in the, in the mine for that problem. And then if you don't have babies, then, you know, watch the skin and hair coat and certainly keep iodine on, on your list. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been really informative. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Thanks so much for joining us again. All right. You're welcome. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit fortheloveofgoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash lovegoatspodcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.